God bless you. Please be seated. Blessed to be with you this morning. You can see we're on part three of our marriage, divorce, remarriage, and sex. And this morning, we are going to look at God's heart on divorce. Now, this within this series, I know from my counseling ministry that this is the most sensitive issue that I deal with or that I will be dealing with. And the first two parts of this were uh, widely received. I think that the first two had more hits and views on YouTube and on uh, in our website than any other teachings that we've done. So people want to understand and know God's will. And like with anything, when we approach this, we wanted to see what God has to say, and we can never be afraid of what God's going to say. And I want to remind you, I've started every one of these teachings with these three points. First of all, God is love. And because God is love, His will is always best. Secondly, God knows everything. Isn't that helpful? God knows everything, and His directions are always right. And third, God is almighty, which means He can enable you to accomplish His will. And divorce is a very important subject. It touches pretty much everyone. I would imagine that everyone in this room knows someone who's been divorced. So it touches universally within our culture. Unfortunately, many people are afraid to take an honest look at divorce. In many ways, it is like the elephant in the living room. Now, you can pretend it isn't there. You can pretend it isn't an elephant. But when it goes to the bathroom, you're going to have problems. I know why people are afraid to tackle this subject. I met a woman who had gone to a pastor who told her that God wanted her to go back to an abusive husband and submit to him. I'd be afraid to get that kind of, knowledge, that kind of wisdom if that's what I thought God was about to share. Many churches still give that kind of advice. God doesn't. God has something different. And, you know, over the years, uh, when I have dealt with divorce, this is only the second time I've ever taught on divorce, and I've been teaching since 1972. Over the years, when it came to divorce, I was reluctant to really take a deep dive and see where the Scriptures might lead. And the reason for that, there were some Scriptures to me at least they seem to my mind, to be clear but terribly narrow. Other verses that I looked at didn't seem to match with what I understood of God's love and forgiveness. And like many of you, I have seen firsthand the pain, the hurt, and the condemnation that comes from divorce. The last thing I want to do is add to that. And that's also the last thing God would like to do. I have discovered that it is in knowing God's heart on any subject, but here on divorce especially, it's in knowing God's heart that we can avoid the heartache of divorce. And it's knowing God's heart and love that will allow people, men and women, to recover from divorce and live a life that is free from condemnation, which is what God desires. So this is not an area that we can ignore and hope that it just goes away. Okay, if I don't look at it, maybe it'll just disappear. It won't. But to get started, you can't consider divorce unless you understand marriage, which is why I taught on marriage first. 
And the most foundational truth regarding marriage is that it was designed by God first and foremost for men and women who had a relationship to him. So what I'm sharing this morning, if you're not a Christian, it's not going to make much sense to you. It will be difficult for you to apply. And what we're going to see as we get into the scriptures is that marriages break down due to sin. And that sin flows, like all other, from letting our relationship to God take a back seat and letting Jesus slip out of first place as the Lord in our life. Now, this may sound oversimplified to you, but it really is that simple. If you keep your relationship to God through Christ in sight, if you keep Jesus as Lord of all of your life, then your family and your marriage will be blessed and your life will be blessed even if you find yourself divorced. So we're going to look this morning at three different aspects of divorce that are covered in God's Word. Actually, we're going to look at two of them this morning and one next week. First, we're going to look at what the Old Testament has to say about divorce. Then we're going to see what Jesus Christ had to say about divorce and how he both clarified and expanded what we read about in the Old Testament. And then finally, we're going to consider what God had Paul add in the church age, which was something different that had not been considered before. But before we go on, let's, we're going to look at the Old Testament first, but I want to give you an overview or a couple of verses that at least bring to mind God's view of divorce and how God feels it should be handled. So Malachi 2.16, pretty simple. It says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God hates divorce. Well, I've actually never encountered anybody who likes it. So, I mean, that's, God is pretty, you know, uniform. Everybody can agree with that. God hates it, so do we. The reason that God hates divorce, or detests divorce, depending on what translation you're reading, is because it is the result of sin and dealing treacherously with your spouse. God doesn't hate those who are divorced, okay? God hates the sin that causes the divorce. There's a distinction. Because in the church throughout the centuries, people who are divorced have been treated as though they're second-class Christians. Or, worse yet, they've been thrown out of the church altogether. That is not what God is talking about here. God hates the sin that causes divorce. But God himself was involved in a divorce over the covenant that he had with Israel. Let's read in Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah 3 verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? How was she playing the whore? She had been covenanted to God. Israel had made a covenant with God that he would be their God. They would worship him. He would care for them. So when he says that they went whoring, he is using a very graphic description to say they were worshiping other gods. They had broken the covenant that they had made with God. Verse 7, and I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. 
and her treacherous sister Judah sought. At this time, Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, had been a king together under Saul, David, and Solomon. After Solomon, then they split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So it says here, her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. A decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. God hoped that Judah would return to him. They did not. They continued to make sacrifices, by the way. They continued to do temple sacrifices to God and then scratched their head as to why he didn't answer their prayers. Well, the reason was they had been treacherous to him. They had gone after other gods. They had broken that covenant. They still offered sacrifices, but they didn't really return to God. I see this in marriage counseling frequently. You'll have the couple in front of you. Many times, one person is willing to make changes in their behavior to avoid divorce, but they are not really willing to repent. And that doesn't work, just like it didn't work for Israel. The section here in Jeremiah shows us some of what God expects in how he has regulated divorce. First of all, God's primary concern is for repentance and reconciliation. You know how long he waited for Israel to turn back to him before he issued a decree of divorce? Around 200 years. He was patient. Divorce was not supposed to be quick. During those times, God sought reconciliation numerous times with Israel. He did this through the prophets that he sent to them. Two of the most famous prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, were both sent to Israel while they were dealing treacherously with God. So God did not abandon them. This wasn't quick. But finally, there came a time when God divorced Israel. Now, he is using terminology here that all the children of Israel would understand. He had made a covenant with them. They all knew that marriage was a covenant. And he indicates that the breaking of that covenant, the dissolving of that covenant involved a divorce. And a divorce represents the formal dissolving of the covenant that God had made with Israel. Now, God was the wronged party in this particular divorce, yet he was the one who had to initiate the divorce, wasn't he? He's the one who had to take action. Often, it is the wronged party who is left with the task of cleaning up the mess from unrepentant sin. In hardness of heart. In the Bible, actually, as we get into it, you will see that it is only the wronged party that has a right to initiate the divorce. The person who is causing the problem is not to initiate the divorce. The one who is causing the problem is encouraged to repent and to change. Now, in God's case with Israel, one, part was, one party was completely innocent, right? Right? God was completely innocent. That is usually not the case in most divorces. One spouse may generally, in my experience of counseling, one spouse may be more responsible than the other. Uh, But 
usually both of them have contributed to the place where they're at. Now, if a husband, this is where you have to understand, if a husband falls short in loving his wife as Christ loved the church, that is no excuse for the wife to go commit adultery. You know, I've seen this happen in marriages on both sides. Divorce in the Old Testament was accommodated because of man's fallen nature and his hard heart. It was never God's desire. Although he recognizes divorce and he regulates divorce. Now you think about this. God regulates how divorce is to be handled. You do not regulate what you forbid. Okay? We do not regulate bank robbery. Okay? We forbid bank robbery. There's no like, well, you know, on the third Thursday of the month, if it's after 3 o'clock and nobody's in the, in the bank lobby. No, we don't regulate bank robbery. We forbid it. God regulates divorce, which means he gives the standards under which you would get a divorce, under which you could consider a divorce. Why? Because God was the one who gave us the standards about marriage. He's the one who designed marriage. It's not as though I designed marriage and now God's imposing his idea about divorce. No, God designed both of them. God has put his will into both of them. Divorce existed prior to the book of Exodus, okay? Obviously. But in the law, what God does is he formalizes how divorce is to be handled and under what circumstances it is acceptable to him. And this is done mostly to protect the woman, which is very interesting. What God does in the Old Testament was unheard of in the ancient world. Now, since marriage was God's idea, not divorce, you might be wondering, well, why doesn't God just forbid divorce? I mean, it wasn't his idea. Why doesn't he just forbid it? The regulation of divorce was an accommodation that God allowed because of the fallen nature of man and hard-heartedness. In cases where God allows divorce, it is to prevent even greater evil, harm, or damage. That's when God regulates and allows for divorce. And there are two sections in the Old Testament that address divorce, its reasons and how it should be handled and what occurs after a divorce. The first is in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, God shows the cause, process, and result of, a, of divorce due to adultery. Deuteronomy 24.1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she, then she finds no favor in his sight because he has found some indecency of, in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Now let's see what, we, what we've seen so far here. The husband no longer finds favor, or the wife no longer finds favor with the husband in this example. Why? Because of some indecency in her. That might be a little vague to you. What does indecency mean here? It may seem vague. It means sexual immorality or adultery, which is what Jesus will clarify for us when we get to the New Testament. Another thing we learned from this verse in Deuteronomy, you had to write out a bill of divorce, which would then need to be witnessed. You had to place it in your wife's hand. No intermediaries. No ducking behind the wall. 
You had to place it in her hand. This required a face-to-face encounter where perhaps things could be worked out without divorce. Now, this written bill of divorce was different from the rest of the ancient world. In the rest of the ancient world, divorce was generally verbal. Husband tells his wife, leave the house, you're no longer my wife. And she was no longer his wife. Giving a bill of divorce, having a certificate of divorce, allowed the woman to legally be remarried. That's what the bill of divorce actually declared. We have evidence of ancient Jewish bills of divorce. It said, Joan is divorced from Johnny, and she may be married to any Jewish man. That's what they would say. We'll see this again next week when we look at what Paul said in the church epistles. Now, a verbal divorce gave no security or protection to the woman because the man could come back and claim her anytime he wanted. And you know when he'd come back and claim her? When those two little boys grew up and were large enough to work on the farm. The bill of divorce protected the woman from this great abuse in the ancient world, which is remarkable that women just were property in the, in the ancient world. Not in God's viewpoint, however. Not from God's viewpoint. Look at verse 2. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, once you are divorced, as we will see even clearer next week, you are single. And if you are single, then you can be married, right? Or in this case, you can be remarried. Have you ever heard the phrase that a divorced couple is still married in God's sight? I've heard that from a number of divorced You know what? Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible anywhere. If you are divorced, you are now single again. And you can remarry as any single person could remarry. That's why it's just, it's, you see, when you're reading the scripture, you have to understand what it's talking about. It is just making the case of a matter of fact, and she goes and marries another man. Because obviously, if she's divorced, she can do that. She's got a certificate that says she can remarry, that she's no longer married. The idea that you're still married in God's sight is something that forms the basis of the doctrine of many churches to this day. And it's not biblical. Now, the next Old Testament record deals with divorce due to what we would call neglect. And the example that God uses is the weakest member of society. And that is a a former female slave. That would be the weakest member in society. No legal rights in the ancient world whatsoever. But legal rights under the covenant of God, which is interesting. So, what we're going to read about here, to me, people don't understand this, that women were given any rights was extraordinary. That a slave woman was given rights was unbelievable. And yet here we have it in the scriptures. This section is talking about the practice of buying a slave to be your wife. We obviously don't do that anymore, but if you look at the 19th century, remember mail order brides? Not very different than what we're going to be reading about here, okay? 
It says in verse 7 of Exodus 21, If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. Why? Because she's being purchased, she's being taken in to be somebody's wife. So she's no longer going to be treated as a slave. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then she shall let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. So, again, we don't have slavery, but he got this woman to be his wife. He he would have to let her be redeemed if he did not want to marry her. I guess in the Wild West, you'd have to pay stagecoach fare for the woman to return back to Boston if you ended up not wanting to marry her. If he designates her for his son, remember the ancient world had arranged marriages? So if he designates her for her son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters, not a slave. I mean, people don't understand how different God was from the rest of the world. So this woman now is brought into the family as a daughter, not as a slave girl. If he, meaning the man himself or the son, takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights, which means sexual rights to sex in marriage. Verse 11, if he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. She is divorced and free to go if he will not do this. What is described here was universally recognized in Israel as divorce for gross neglect. Now, not having sexual relations would obviously be considered neglect, but it was particularly cruel in their society where the, uh, the birth of children was considered to be a duty and a responsibility. Now, this section here, when it talks about her food or her clothing, this would also include such things as abuse, which would be really gross neglect. See, we, we, some people have misread what the Scriptures say about divorce because some things it doesn't say because it's just obvious. That's why the church has been so bass-ackwards with this. Where church, there are churches that would allow divorce for adultery but not for attempted murder. I'm not making this up. Does that make sense to anybody? I'm hoping not. (laughs) If you think that's a good idea, we'll talk later. So some things are just obvious. If you commit a crime against your spouse, obviously that's grounds for divorce. God, God talks about food, clothing. That means to care for. Obviously, beating your wife is not caring for her, is it? This section would include abuse that would be considered extreme neglect or it could be uh, considered a crime against the spouse. Okay, let me summarize what we've learned here. Because when you read these sections, you have to understand them within the context of God's covenant relationship to Israel. Not everything is put in a single record. So here's to summarize. God did not design divorce. But divorce was permitted in cases where the covenant of marriage was broken. And it could be broken by neglect, abuse, or adultery. Even then, God regulated how divorce was to be handled. There had to be a certificate of divorce. 
A slave would be set free. In doing so, what God did here was he established a procedure that eliminated the injustices that occurred because of the sinful nature of man. So, under certain circumstances, God permitted divorce. But it was never required. Divorce is never required by God. After divorce, a person was then free to remarry. Divorce was permitted but regulated for all these issues, especially adultery, which could be considered extremely cruel or neglectful. In God's view, what he always wanted, what his desire was, was repentance and reconciliation. And because there is a God who is almighty, that would always be possible, although it didn't always occur. So next we're going to look at what Jesus Christ said about divorce. And it's from what Jesus Christ said and how it has been misunderstood that most churches have taken the absurd positions on divorce that they have today. First of all, I'm going to look at a verse that's not about divorce. It's about everything that Jesus was going to do in his life. Matthew 5.17. Matthew 5.17 says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That verse didn't come up uh, Okay, well, there you go. I just read it to you. Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. So does that mean that Jesus was going to abolish Deuteronomy 24 and Exodus 21 or that he was not going to abolish it? He's not going to abolish it. So we're going to go to Matthew 19. And we need to keep in mind, and I'm going to explain to you the historical context behind this episode. And you have to understand also what we have read in the Old Testament already with Jesus would not break or change, only fulfill. So, Matthew 19.3. It's this Matthew 19 that almost got me to not teach the Gospel of Matthew several years ago. Because at first, I just didn't know how to handle these verses. Matthew, verse 3 of chapter 19. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. So, are the Pharisees looking for information? Do they want to know true doctrine? No. That's the setup you have to recognize. They, asked, they were testing him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? If you don't understand the background of this question, you cannot possibly understand what Jesus is going to be saying to these Pharisees. Everybody present that day would understand the question. And scholars, Bible scholars, have understood Jesus' answer to this question for at least 150 years. In fact, some of you probably have study Bibles at home that give at least some of what I'm going to be sharing with you. Sadly, the truths from this section have not made it to the pulpits. The Pharisees are here to test Jesus. They are anxious to trap him in some way. So they asked him a very specific question. Is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause? By using the phrase, is it lawful, they were starting a rabbinical debate with Jesus about the law. That's what they were doing. They are entering into a formal debate with Jesus about a legal question. And the reason that you have to understand this is because there were two schools of rabbis in the first century, and they had opposing views about what Deuteronomy 24 meant. 
Remember, if he finds some indecency in his wife, there was a question about what does this indecency really mean? Jesus is going to clarify it for us. But the school of Shammai maintained that the indecency referred to sexual sin, which is what the Jews had believed for 1,200 years. I mean, that's nothing new. And that, of course, would narrow its application. There was another and more popular rabbi, Hillel, who taught that the verse meant if the, wife, if the husband found anything objectionable in his wife, he could divorce her. Burn the toast, gained weight after childbirth, whatever you want, he could divorce her. And this allowed divorce for any cause. It was a legal phrase. When they said, is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause, he was using a recognized phrase. Just like everybody today would understand what I meant if I said no-fault divorce or irreconcilable differences. We would understand what those terms mean. Everybody there would know about this argument. You know, for years when I read these verses, I thought they were asking... Jesus. They were asking, is it ever lawful to divorce? That's how I read it. Is, it. is it lawful to divorce for any cause? I read it, is it ever lawful to divorce? That's a stupid question because divorce is in the law. Therefore, it's lawful. So nobody would ask that question because the, the Scriptures clearly declared. So that's not what they were asking him. They wanted to get Jesus to commit to one side or another of this argument. Now, they knew or would have access to knowing that on the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 5, it appeared that Jesus was coming down on the side that Deuteronomy 24 meant only adultery. That's, was, you could get that from what he said in Matthew 5. They want a clear statement because you know what most people liked? Most people liked any cause divorce. So what, their hope, what they were probably hoping was Jesus would come down against any cause divorce and people, his followers, would stop following him because they disagreed with that. That's how they were testing and trying to trap him. Now, today our culture has certainly embraced any cause divorce. The no-fault, irreconcilable differences. But God only permits divorce for the breaking of a covenant, the covenant of marriage, such as adultery, abuse, or neglect. Falling out of favor is not something that God addresses as a reason for divorce. So, now you know they were asking Jesus a question about the law over which there was a big dispute in the first century. What's Jesus going to say? Verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? Verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So they ask Jesus about divorce. You know what he answers them with? Marriage. He says, let me clarify what marriage is for you. And in rabbinical debates, 
the further back you went into the Old Testament, the more valid your argument was. So, you know, they viewed the Bible as God's Word. But, you know, if I, if I got something out of Psalms, well, that was better than getting it out of Jeremiah, which was better than getting it out of Ezekiel. Jesus goes to Genesis. So there's not going to be any getting ahead of Jesus on this. He has got this one nailed. Now, misreading verse 6 has also caused problems to people. Remember I said some churches say that if you're divorced, you're still married in God's eyes? This is where they get that from. What, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Does it, it doesn't say that man cannot separate. He's just admonishing you not to. But you see, people read that and say, well, if God's joined you, you cannot be divorced. Therefore, you're still married in God's sight. That's not what this section of Scripture is teaching. It's not what Jesus was talking about. It's not the context. This is simply an added encouragement not to divorce. Jesus affirmed, his answer to their question about divorce for any cause was to affirm that marriage was God's design and it's still his will. Therefore, what God has joined together, let's not separate that. Even though Jesus knew full well that its separation was allowable under the law, but it was never God's desire. He doesn't say it's impossible to separate, only that you should not. Even in the Old Testament, what we saw was that God wanted patience, like 200 years waiting for Israel to turn around. He wanted reconciliation and repentance. But So Jesus answers their question by pointing them back to marriage. They're not satisfied with that answer. They want to press him a little bit more because they want Jesus to take the unpopular side of this argument. And they said to him in verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Verse 8, Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. You see how the Pharisees misquoted Scripture? They said... Why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce? Jesus clarifies it and says, He allowed you to do this. God never commands it. He allowed it. Moses did not command divorce. He permitted it under certain circumstances. Namely, the unrepentant sin of breaking one of the core covenant promises of marriage. The regulation of divorce was an accommodation God made because of man's fallen nature and hard hearts. So God's will is clear. Stay married. But he still accommodates divorce because of the hard-heartedness of man, which in the extreme, that hard-heartedness would bring greater hurt and evil than remaining in the marriage. See, what God is doing here, he is seeking to protect his people from a situation that will never improve and which will cause great harm and pain if allowed to continue. That's why God allowed for divorce. So according to Jesus, divorce occurs because of hardness of heart. It's a hardness of heart on either one or both of the spouse's part. We don't like the sound of that. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't like hardness of heart. I like, 
irreconcilable differences. I like no fault. Nobody's at fault here. We're just breaking this off. I'm going to go with Jesus on this. Divorce is caused by hard-heartedness to some extent. So, the allowance of divorce in the record we read in Exodus 21, which was neglect, was due to hardness of heart. Jesus is now going to actually answer the Pharisees' question. He wasn't just playing around with them. He first, he, his answer was very specific. First, let me tell you what marriage is about. Then he goes on and he talks about what really causes divorce. Now he is going to answer the question about the any cause divorce, the legal question. It says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, not the Pharisees, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Oh, you mean you want to be able to go into a marriage with an easy exit? You want a revolving door when you get married? You got the wrong attitude then. This is what Jesus is talking about. Verse 9, you've got to understand this. Verse 9 is only talking about the illegitimate any cause divorce, which was the subject of their question. I wrongly, I'll admit this, I wrongly interpreted this. I took this to say that any divorce for other than adultery was wrong. But the context was Deuteronomy 24, not Exodus 21. Exodus 21 was not in dispute. Nobody disputed, disputed that a crime against your spouse were grounds for divorce. Nobody disputed whether neglect was a ground for divorce. What they disputed was, well, can I just get rid of her for any reason at all? I didn't like her earrings. That's what they wanted. Misunderstanding this context that we just read in verse 9 is why some churches will allow divorce for adultery but not for attempted murder. That's the verse they use. And they use that verse because they don't understand what it's talking about because we've lost connection with the, ba- the historical background of the Bible. So we read it, thinking it looking at it from a 21st century uh, point of view. Now, from verse 10, we recognize, since it was the disciples who said, oh, wow, maybe better shouldn't get married. Divorce for any cause was considered acceptable by almost everybody. Just like today, many Christians fully accept the idea that divorce for irreconcilable differences or no-fault divorce is perfectly acceptable. For Christians with Jesus as Lord, there are never truly irreconcilable differences. But unfortunately, not all Christians keep Jesus as Lord in every part of their life. We kind of break our life into compartments. I keep Him as Lord here, not there. Semi-Lord here. We want Him Lord of our day-to-day lives. Now, what Jesus says here are strong words. He's saying that if you use the any-cause divorce to get rid of your wife, you're committing adultery. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? It's an exaggeration. It's hyperbole. It's there for effect. Matthew uses this a lot. There's an example that you'd clearly understand from the book of 1 John. It says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Hate doesn't kill people. 
Now, maybe you hated and then you killed, but hatred by itself is not murder. Murder is the purposeful and wrongful taking of a human life. Hatred doesn't do that. So why does God say he who hates his brother is a murderer? He's making a point. Stop hating your brother. Quit divorcing for any cause. That's the point he's making. Now, these verses in Matthew are about initiating divorce, being the one who starts the proceedings. And if you're going to start the proceedings, you can't do it for any cause. You have to have a legitimate cause, which we know from Scripture, which Jesus wouldn't change, was either neglect, abuse, or adultery. Those are the reasons that God gave for them. And only the wronged party has the right to start divorce proceedings. We see this from God himself. Further, only the wronged party can truly say when enough is enough in a divorce. So God was the wronged party with Israel, right? He put up with them for 200 years, right? Finally, he goes, okay, enough is enough. So he could say that because he was the wronged party. You have no right to interfere in somebody else's marriage if there is a hurt person there who's whose life has been damaged because of the breaking of that marriage covenant by their spouse, you're not the one who has the right to say, oh, no, you should just stick it out a little bit longer. They're the ones who know when enough is enough. Let them pray to God and talk about it. That's not for my decision to make. Now, of course, today, not only men, like in the Old Testament and Bible times, men and women freely avail themselves of any, any cause divorce, which is nothing more than a cover for a hard heart. Now, Deuteronomy 24 places adultery as a cause for divorce. He places that in a special category because adultery severely undermines the covenant of marriage. But even with adultery, divorce is not commanded. It's only permitted. God has a desire that people would still repent and be reconciled. But, as we saw, that's not always possible. Therefore, God divorced Israel, right? For Christians, divorce is never inevitable, although I know that it at times occurs. When it does occur, let's just be honest, it is occurring because at that time there is hard-heartedness on the part of one or the other of the spouses, usually both. Now, you might think that it's only talking about hard-heartedness toward the spouse. That's certainly true, but it's actually hard-heartedness toward God and His love and His Word. Everything goes back to God in this. If you lose sight of your Lord, then you focus on yourself. That's what happens when you lose sight of your Lord. Then people view marriage, actually they view all of life, as something to serve them and their needs and desires. In the marriage pledge, when I have a couple stand before me and I marry them, They promise that they will love each other unconditionally, that they will honor and expect one another and cherish one another as long as they both shall live. These are promises to give something to the other party, not to receive something from that party. What you covenant with in marriage is what you're going to give, what you promise to give. I can't guarantee that you will receive it back from your spouse, but I can In my life, I can guarantee that I'm going to give that to my wife. Now, there is one further uh, cause for divorce, and that is abandonment. 
And we're going to look at that next week because it appears within a section on remarriage. But in our marriage, we give of ourselves. In a wrongful divorce, in an any-cause divorce, we take for ourselves. Keep your eyes on your heavenly Father and your heart on your Lord, and there is nothing that will come up that cannot be healed and forgiven. So where do we go from here? Because I know people have a lot of different experiences. If you are married, the good news is that there's nothing that can't be worked out if you keep Jesus as Lord. Don't allow yourself to consider divorce. See, the devil will paint an illusion. And the devil's illusion is that my life would be much better if only I were divorced. That is seldom true. But even where divorce is necessary such as in abuse and neglect. Even when it's necessary and you're allowed to do it from God's perspective, there's still pain and hurt. I've never encountered a divorce that did not have pain and hurt in it, regardless of what the circumstances were. And I've seen some pretty far-out circumstances. So, if you are married, keep Jesus as Lord. Don't fall for the temptation of hard-heartedness. The two of you working together with God can always find a way out. If you are struggling in your marriage, come for help. Because I'll tell you what the devil wants to do. He, when you have an issue, he wants to isolate you until you're hard-hearted. And then once you're hard-hearted, he doesn't care if you go for counseling. And I see this happen regularly. People have an issue that they've had for five, eight years. They've kept it to themselves and just allowed it to fester. So now they're finally hard-hearted enough. The devil doesn't care if they come for for counsel or not because they're already hard-hearted. Don't let the devil isolate you. So that's if you're married. What if you're divorced? Are you divorced and it was your sin? Repent. Restore Jesus as Lord. Then ask God what you should do. Are you divorced and it was forced upon you by a hard-hearted partner? You know what you do then? You forgive them and ask God to direct your steps and to heal your heart. That's what God will do. And in both cases, I have seen God bless many believers with their second marriages. And remarriage is what we're going to look at next week because it, again, is a very misunderstood concept. And people are treated like second-class citizens in many parts of the Christian world. And it's just not the case at all. So that even though divorce was not God's desire, we can see by what he says about it, we can still see his love, his mercy, and his grace that abounds to his children. Our Father cares for you, and he doesn't care where you've been, what you've done. He doesn't care how you got to where you are today. He is still your God, and he's still your Father. So why don't we stand up, and we can pray together. Again, as I've done the last couple of weeks, there is an outline for you on the back table that if you want to review this teaching, you can do that. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for designing marriage. Thank you for designing a relationship that can fulfill us in ways that we could never imagine. And I pray, Father, for your love, your mercy, and your peace upon everyone, not only those here, but those who might be listening in, God, that you bless them, especially, God, people who may have been divorced in your life, that you give them comfort and direction and show them your love 
and show them how valuable their lives still are. And I pray, God, for a wonderful week. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you have a physical need and you'd like to be prayed for, please don't walk out the door without getting prayed for. I love you. God bless you.